This week on Physically Spiritual, I continue the series on food as we explore human appetite in satiety. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Over these last weeks, we've been journeying up the ladder of being as we are trying to dive deep into the idea of what is food. We started off with a foundation of a Catholic worldview. We asked the question, what is food? And now we've been working from the ground up, from the soil to the plants to the animals that we eat. And now we're finally to the human person. And in this episode, we're going to uh, take a, a, a close look at what draws us to food and then what draws us away from food, or we might say appetite and satiety. Appetite is simply wanting to eat. Satiety is simply not wanting to eat. When we take a look at how these systems work in the body, what, what physically, what biologically makes us want to eat or makes us not want to eat, we have to start with the concept of homeostasis. Homeostasis is just a concept of balance in the body, that the body likes to sort of stay where it is. Too much or too little are often problems in so many different ways. So, so the body very tightly regulates many of its systems into homeostasis. An example of this would be body temperature. Your body temperature, at least in its core, is very tightly regulated. If you jump in cold water, for example, your inner body temperature isn't going to rise right away, but immediately your body's getting cold signals that then are going to increase your body's core temperature. On the other hand, the opposite is true. If you're out in a hot environment, it's not going to uh, change right away, but eventually what, what your body does is it starts to sweat. You start to breathe more heavily. There's all these systems engaged to try to regulate your body temperature and keep it in homeostasis. Well, your, your body weight, basically the amount of fat you maintain on your body, has a homeostasis to it too. There's a theory called body weight set point and a function of the body called a lipostat. A lipostat for, for lipid. Lipid is a word for fat. So the lipostat is controlling the level of fatness in the body. And your body wants to maintain a certain level of homeostasis with this too. A lot of these, uh, these functions of balance in the body are controlled by a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is it's a little part of the brain at the base, right where the optic nerves, I apologize for that, right where the optic nerves cross each other. And it looks almost kind of like a walnut or a wad of chewed up bubble gum that's down there. And this little part of the brain, uh, controls a lot of this homeostasis, the automatic functions of the body in order to maintain balance. All of this is tuned for survival. In this survival, it's going to, uh, it's going to value or see as more of an emergency an acute problem over a chronic problem. Acute meaning something that's going to, to happen in a quick way, in a severe way that could kill you very quickly. Versus a chronic problem, meaning something that, even though it's not ideal, it's not going to hurt you for many years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So when we're thinking about this lipostat, we need to hold this in mind, that our body is solving an equation for survival, and then for the passing on of our, of our genes, our genetic code, the, the, the continuation of our species. But it's also caring for acute things first and allowing chronic problems to, to ensue. Because oftentimes we're able to sort of complete our biological imperatives, even with those chronic issues being the case. 
You know, our body is really interested in keeping us very healthy through our 30s, uh, but our body honestly isn't really primed to keep us well through our 60s, 70s, 80s, and even older. So this lipostat, it's, it's prime for survival. And one of the most adaptive tools of the human body is the ability to gain fat. Now, we as a culture, I think, undervalue the body's ability to gain fat. If you look at some of our, our closest genetic relatives, most, most apes, uh, they're actually nearly incapable of gaining body fat. It's not the case for every different species, but compared to our closest relatives, we have a, a much higher capacity to hold energy onto our bodies. And this, this ability is built into us because of our survival instinct. Right? The, the ability to, to store energy on the body is literally the difference between being able to survive a period of not having food available or not being able to. And then having an extreme low body weight puts us at, at a, very, um, a very vulnerable place for short periods without nutrition or for a different illness like an infection or something that might happen that might prevent us from holding food in our body for an extended period of time. So the, uh, the acute issue of starvation or the need to overcome uh, you know, some kind of acute illness trumps the chronic issues that body fat leads to many years down the road whether it be increased risk for cardiovascular disease, for cancer, for dementia, uh, or uh, diabetes, or something like that. So this, this hypothalamus, this lipostat in the body, will prevent weight loss, but on the other hand, it only resists weight gain, meaning there's, there's a, a, a certain point where this, this system will actually prevent us from gaining weight. And you might experience in, this in your life, where you'll get to a certain body weight and your body seems to resist movement up or down. So maybe you'll have a, a big meal, but then the next day you won't feel as hungry. And then maybe you exercise and then later that day you feel more hungry. <laughs> your body both sort of gives a little bit of resistance to you gaining weight, but then also more resistance to you losing weight. And you might find yourself sort of hovering around a certain body weight for this period of time. And this is the, the function of this lipostat in the body. But then something in your life changes, oftentimes a shift in the hormones of your body. It could be chronic stress. It could be a trauma. It could be the birth of a child or something like this. All this changes the hormonal uh, signaling in your body. And you might find yourself gaining some weight. Well, now that you're at that new weight, what you might find is, well, you're at a new kind of set point. And once again, your body starts to resist. You don't just gain weight indefinitely. But then again, you find it much harder to lose weight and sort of be at the place where you were before. All of this is the function of this lipostat. Your body seeking homeostasis for the sake of survival. And then the resistance to losing weight is much stronger than the resistances to gaining weight. Because the acute problem that starvation presents is a much bigger risk than the chronic issues of being overweight presents to our survival instincts. Now let's dig into this a little bit further and ask the question, what, what's really happening in the body when we're experiencing hunger, when we're experiencing fullness, what's going on inside of us? There's at least 20 different hormonal signals that we've discovered that control these, these impulses in our body. And I'm only gonna cover uh, kind of the five main ones and, and the two biggest ones in, in fullest detail. The two we really need to be most uh, 
familiar with are the hormones of leptin and ghrelin. Leptin and ghrelin. Leptin, you might conceive of leptin as being like the break on the hypothalamus. This inhibits the hypothalamus. This is, this is a break that, that inhibits your hunger. Ghrelin, on the other hand, is going to signal the hypothalamus for hunger, that, that energy is needed. And these are actually produced in different parts of the body. So the vast majority of our leptin is produced in our fat cells. So fat isn't just an, an inert source of energy storage. The fat on your body is actually an, an endocrine organ. It's producing this hormone that's then giving signaling to this lipostat, to the hypothalamus. So the way this is meant to function is that the more fat that's on your body, the more leptin is produced, and therefore the less hunger the person experiences. Right? The body is signaling to the system that, that there's plenty of energy and, and we're fine. The other thing that inhibits this leptin secretion is, um, is insulin, acute stress, and having recently ate. So if, if you eat, you're, you're triggering insulin production in the body in order to, to use that energy, to store that energy. And so that's creating a signal to produce leptin to tell the body not to eat. And also if there's an acute stressor, meaning your survival instinct is triggered, right? If you're being chased by a wild animal or something else is happening, the body's not interested in eating, right? You want to get away. You need to survive. So this is a, a this is signaling a, a decrease in leptin. So some people actually find that when they're stressed out for a long period of time, they lose weight. They lose their appetite. And this is why. On the other hand, ghrelin. Ghrelin is produced in the gastrointestinal tract. So think of your whole system of digestion, your stomach, your, your large intestine, your small intestine. This is the area of the body that's producing ghrelin. It's not you're not just digesting your food. You're also creating this hormone and signaling it up to your body. And this is, this is triggering the hypothalamus. This is, is signaling hunger. And the reason why this gets triggered is because there's a low energy level of substrate in the plasma. So low, low carbohydrate, low fat. So there's, there's things that your body can use for energy in the plasma or because your, your body weight is reducing. And this signals an increase of ghrelin production in the body. And this balance of leptin and ghrelin, which is always shifting up and down inside of you, is the primary lever in the body that's controlling the phenomenon of I'm hungry and I want to eat something, or I'm full and I don't want to eat anything. There's a couple other hormones that I can mention that are involved. There's one called peptide YY. This is signaled by the, the stretching of the stomach, the stretching, the filling of the intestines. Uh, and this, this Physical distension of these organs leads to the signaling of this hormone, which gives you a sense of fullness. There's also cholecystokinin, and this is uh, also sometimes called CCK, if you don't want to use the whole big, crazy, funky word. What this does is, is as you're eating something, it reduces the reward signal in your body, and then it slows the motility of things going through your digestive tract. So basically, the more of something that you're eating, you're getting less and less reward from it. So you might have the experience of picking up something, maybe something very sweet, like a dessert. And as you start the dessert, uh, it tastes amazing. 
There's like this bliss, this euphoria you experience. But then as you eat it, especially if it takes a long time to eat, by the end, you probably don't want to even finish it. Now, a lot of times we'll take a dessert and we'll scarf it up faster than our body can send any signaling to us. But if we have something that's very rich, this cholecystokine and CCK activates and, and, and reduces the reward we feel as a result of eating that. The same thing happens if you eat the same food over and over and over again for every meal. You know, some people try like a potato diet, which brings the fat that you intake way down and causes a loss of weight. And what happens is that the, the reward for eating that um, over and over again ends up getting downregulated, and so you don't want to eat so much. Then there's also another important hormone uh, for the system called GLP-1, but that's a little more complicated than I want to get into today. Uh, so this, this leptin and ghrelin balance are the primary thing that's happening as we're experiencing hunger and satiety. Now let's think about this a little bit from a couple different perspectives. From the one perspective, probably the most common one of someone listening is somebody that wants to, to lose weight. So what happens as you're losing weight is the amount of your body fat is getting reduced. And as that body fat is reducing, what's happening is your, your level of leptin in your body is actually starting to go down. And as a result of having less and less leptin in the body, you're going to experience more and more hunger. On the other hand, this ghrelin is produced by, uh, by either not having enough energy in the body or by your body weight going low also. So as your leptin is descending as you're losing weight, your ghrelin is going up as you're losing weight. So your signaling for satiety is going down, your signaling for hunger is going up. So it's a very common experience for people to lose 10 pounds or 20 pounds, but then feel like they lose control, right? They can no longer follow their diet. And this is all the, the operation of this, uh, this lipostat in the body. Now, a phenomenon that's been observed by scientists, but we can't fully explain it yet, is an experience called leptin resistance. Leptin resistance, meaning that the same amount of the leptin hormone in the body produces a less and less effect. It's being received in a, in a less and less uh, a strong way by the systems that are meant to receive it. So what happens is a greater level of leptin is required in order to generate the same amount of signal in your experience. And this is what happens when somebody starts to gain a lot of weight, is all those fat cells in the body are creating more and more leptin. And as a result, then the signaling of the body isn't as strong. And you might think based on this lipostat that the person would just, um, would just spontaneously lose weight, but that's not the case. What we find is actually the body likes to hold on to that weight, even though we know it's not good for us, um, long-term, and, and the body wants to kind of greedily hold on to that energy storage. Right? We're saving for the next winter, for the possible ice age, for uh, a bad rainy season that leads to less crops or, or whatever different things that encountered our biology in the past. We're having this extra weight was helpful. Uh, let's take the other thing, for example. You might have somebody that wants to gain weight Maybe they want to become a, a bodybuilder or something like that, and they want to put on a lot of muscle. There's actually been experience, experiments done that are forced feeding experiments where they'll take a group of, of healthy people and they'll try to force them to gain weight. And what scientists have found is it's actually 
pretty difficult to take a healthy person and force them to gain weight. And even though during the, the course of the, the force feeding part of the experiment, they can obviously gain weight, once the person's diet is returned back to normal and they can eat ad libitum again, meaning just as much as they would like to, many of these people's weight actually returns back to normal. And this is for the opposite reason. As the person gains weight, their leptin level increases and their ghrelin level decreases. So their satiety goes up and their hunger goes down. And people get to the point where they literally don't want to eat anymore. Where the, what the body's telling them to do is to skip meals, to stop eating. Uh, they feel sick. And oftentimes this is the experience of someone who's trying to, to gain weight, maybe in a, a bulking phase as an, as an athlete trying to get stronger. They, they have to eat beyond the point where they want to. And this is, the once again, the function of this lipostat, trying to maintain the homeostasis of the body. So let's hold on to this whole idea of the lipostat for a bit. And, and now take it to the next layer of experience where you're hungry. And when you're experiencing hunger, you want certain things, right? You want certain foods. And in order to understand why the body wants what it wants, we have to take a look at the phenomenon of taste. We only have certain uh, receptors hardwired into our ability to taste. So I want to make a distinction here between the phenomenon of taste and the phenomenon of flavor. Taste is what we're biologically wired to experience. Flavor is the full, rich human experience of consuming something. So with taste, we only have receptors in our mouth that we're aware of for five different experiences. Sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami. Umami is the one that people uh, might not understand as well. Umami really comes from the experience of eating meat. It's also present in soy sauce, aged cheese, tomatoes, fermented food, and, and the, the chemical additive MSG, monosodium glutamate. This is an experience of umami. So these different signals that we receive from these receptors are communicating different basic things to the body. Sweetness often comes along with carbohydrates. So sweetness often signals energy. Umami often comes with meat. So umami is signaling protein, amino acids that are essential for the body building itself. Salty is the only mineral that we have a taste receptor for. And why is salt so important? Well, salt is a part of hydration. Without salt, we don't hold on to water. So our ability to have salt is, is essential for the ability to survive and hold on to our water, to be hydrated. We also then have these negative taste receptors, bitter. Bitter would be a signal for a lot of different things in nature that are actually poisonous to us. And then sour is a signal for something that's rotten, right? something that, that is spoiled. So these bitter and sour flavor profiles are, are trying to repulse us from things, while these sweet, umami, and salty flavor profiles are trying to attract us to things. When we're, we're talking about these experiences of, of taste versus flavor, we also have to make a distinction between detection and perception. Detection and perception. We, we actually talked a little bit about this in the last season when we talked about the functioning of the autonomic nervous system in relation to stress and polyvagal theory. But detection is, is your body experiencing certain things separate from your consciousness. Right? So there's a layer of you that's experiencing the world 
and then having an experience of attraction or repulsion that's separate from your consciousness, right? Our mind can't fully be explained by our conscious experience. On the other hand, we have the experience of perception, which is our conscious experience of the world around us. So as we're, we're, uh, we're experiencing food, as we're having flavors interact with us as a person, there's both a detection of those flavors that's happening in our body, which is controlling all of this hormonal signaling, but then we also have the perception of these flavors. So this perception is the experience of flavor versus taste. And in this perception, we are pulling in a lot of different elements of experience. In the perception of flavor, you have the sight of it, what it looks like, the color of it. You might think of this as the, the famous uh, Skittle experiment. Do all Skittles taste the same or do all Skittles, the different colors taste different? Some people think they taste different, but this is just the perception of the color interacting with the taste. Right? Do an experiment where you blindfold yourself and eat Skittles and then try to signify the color based on just the taste alone without seeing them. And you'll find they're all just the same sugary. Um, oh, no, no, it's, it's not Skittles. Skittles actually taste different. It's M&Ms. M&Ms, the colors of the M&Ms. They're all just little pieces of chocolate that are colored differently. Uh, the other thing that's playing in is smell. Our ability to, to smell food, the scent that goes along with it, really changes the flavor and the experience of things. Next is the texture. Right? There are certain things because of its graininess or its smoothness or its texture in the mouth, the mouthfeel that really affects your attraction or repulsion to it. You know, think of the, the experience of a, of a potato chip or a tortilla chip. What's happening there, there's, there's a crunchiness to it, a saltiness to it. A fat, it all comes together to make you want to eat a ton of it. On the other hand, think of a piece of meat that's overcooked, right? And it, it's become sort of, sort of chewy. It's no longer juicy. It's lost a lot of its appeal as a result of the texture. And then the last factor, which is huge in the experience of flavor, is our memory. Our memory of things from the past. A lot of people have the experience of eating something and then feeling sick, and then they never want to eat that thing again. Well, it's probably not like a hamburger that made you sick. It's actually the fact that it was contaminated by something. So now you experience a repulsion to a certain kind of food because of your experience of getting sick from it. And this is a, a very adaptive survival instinct, right? If you would have encountered something in nature that made you sick, you better believe your body wouldn't want to eat it again because it is a threat now. But we also have memories just from our family. We're generally drawn to foods that we've eaten a lot in the past and have given consistent signals of, of sustenance, of being dense in calories, of providing the essential building blocks for our body. And we can actually train our taste over time. We can train our experience of flavor. You know, so a, a lot of people, um, you know, when they're young, when they're children, they want to eat sort of a lot of really calorie-dense foods. Kids don't want to eat their veggies, right? They don't want to eat salads. They want to eat a lot of mac and cheese, and they want to eat a lot of chicken fingers and things like that. They want to have a lot of calories. But then as people get older, generally they start to have an increased appeal to a lot of, uh, a lot of other foods, like, like salads, different vegetables, uh, different combinations of things that don't appeal to children. And what's shifting in the body are two different things. One is the, the basic energy need of the body. As kids are growing, they need a lot of energy to grow. You need to be in a eucaloric state in order to grow. But on the other hand, what's also happening is just an experience of training. As you get older, 
and your reason develops, you reach the age of reason, now you can understand what foods are healthier and will lead to long-term health. And you'll start to try those foods and then even force yourself to eat those on a more consistent basis, right? You might now be at a friend's house and, and you're sharing a meal or at a family-style restaurant and you're gonna eat things in that experience that you wouldn't normally eat because you're not attracted to it. And then maybe a few months down the road, you eat it again because you hear on some radio show or something that it's healthy for you. <laughs> so you try to eat it again. And, and then over time, you, you train your body one experience at a time to be drawn to that food and to no longer be repulsed by it. So this is our, our subjective experience of flavor. Now, considering foods in their natural state, right, just straight off the plant, straight off the animal, one thing we have to recognize is that commonly in nature, there isn't an experience of sweet food and savory food being put together or the experience of, of sweetness and umami being put together at the same time. This would signal uh, carbs and fat, the two primary different places where we get energy, where we get calories from, don't typically live together. Really, the, the, the natural mix of these experiences in the highest concentration are in different seeds, things like almonds, walnuts, coconut, avocado. These seeds are both uh, high in fat, but also have some carbohydrate, and they have some sweetness to them, but also a bit of that savory. Now compare this to a lot of our human inventions, something like, uh, like cake. Cake is chock full of carbs and chock full of fat. It has a ton of sweetness, maybe just a little hint of that umami, right? Typically in cake recipes, you put a little bit of salt. There's, there's a little bit of something in there, the butter, the lard, whatever's added into it, gives us a little bit of that hint of, of fattiness, of meatiness. And in that now, it's giving this extreme signal to the body to eat, to want to eat more of it. And there's actually a concept that scientists have discovered called the bliss point. The bliss point is it's the experience of, uh, of sort of the, the perfect combination of these different flavors, of these different tastes. And this, this bliss point is just the right amount of sweet and salty and umami. So think of picking up just plain table sugar. You can't probably eat a lot of it. Right? You eat a little bit of it, maybe it's sweet, but at a certain point, you're going to feel sick pretty quick just eating straight table sugar. The same thing with salt. Pick up a salt shaker and just you know take it straight and see how much of it you can eat before you feel sick. Pick up some straight MSG and put that on your tongue. What you're going to find is these flavors by themselves in the most refined forms are not very appealing to your body. There's ways that they show up in nature that are more subtle, but generally, like a, a super high concentration sugar in nature, let's take sugar cane, for example, or honey, for example, you can eat some of it, but it's, it's similar to that. Um, it's similar to that experience of eating the plain table sugar. You can only eat so much of it straight. On the other hand, something purely salty. Think of um, maybe the experience of drinking an animal's blood, right? It, it might appeal to you a little bit if you need the salt in your body, but there's going to be a point where that gets gross pretty quick. But we humans have the ingenuity of putting it all together. And food companies will literally experiment with their products to hit this bliss point 
the perfect mix of enough sweetness, enough saltiness, enough umami, maybe even with a hint of sour or a hint of bitter. And it, it triggers a signal in the brain. And that, that signal can be uh, hyper-arousing, meaning it's hyper, it's above, and it's arousing, it's drawing us to. So it's beyond any experience that we would have in nature. And as a result of this, these, uh, these bliss point experiences, these manufactured flavors, can actually start to hack our lipostat. That system that's trying to maintain homeostasis in the body to control the amount that we want. And, and our body will, will start to re- resist this shift over time, but it only happens slowly. So there's actually a decrease in satisfaction from less flavorful foods when we start to eat higher, more flavorful foods. So for example, if you eat a lot of ice cream, walnuts are no longer very sweet for you. (laughs) And this is the body down-regulating that experience of sweetness over time, that reward circuit that's associated with that experience. In order to, to manage your consumption of something like ice cream. But the, the, the devious part of this is as you're, as you're eating these manufactured bliss point targeted foods, natural foods, the, the things from nature that are healthiest for us that our body can understand and make sense of that will help to naturally regulate our body weight, our, our reward signaling from these foods are getting decreased lower and lower and lower. And our ability to, to sense and detect and taste the subtle flavors associated with these things are also becoming less and less extreme. Now, I had this experience in my life too. When, um, when I went on a very low-carb diet to lose, I lost over 100 pounds on it. But after eating this way of eating very little sweetness for three years, if I did taste something that was very sweet, like maybe I had a, a mint or a, a dessert at a party or something like that, it wasn't as appealing to me anymore. And what I noticed when I, when I ate foods that were typically considered bitter or sour or plain by people, I'd really taste the sweetness. Like almonds started to taste almost like candy to me. And I had the experience where I could, I can eat like a straight lemon or a straight lime and I would detect the sweetness in that very sour fruit. Now the opposite is the case too, right? If you're used to eating these, these extreme flavorful foods, the appeal of these plain uh, natural foods is, is going to come down to a lower level. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20 says, One who is full spurns honey, but to the hungry, any bitter thing is sweet. One who is full spurns honey, right? This kind of sweetest thing out of nature, this thing that, uh, that's giving us the energy we need to survive the next, uh, next drought or the winter or something like that. But to the hungry, any bitter thing is sweet. And, and this wisdom in the scripture is, is just noticing this wisdom of the body, what's happening in our body. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the way that scripture talks about food. In the letter to the Philippians chapter 4, St. Paul says, I know indeed how to live in humble circumstances. I know also how to live in abundance. In every circumstance and in all things, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of living in abundance and of being in need. 
I have the strength for everything through him who empowers me. So what St. Paul is talking about here is an experience of virtue. That when he's hungry, he can live well. And when he's well-fed, he can live well. When he has abundance, he can regulate it. And when he doesn't have enough, he can still live a good life. And it's a common experience for people when they're hungry to experience more anger. As that, as that ghrelin level in the body increases and the leptin goes down, you experience hunger and then your, your sympathetic nervous system is more activated. And that's going to give you more energy. So sometimes people will use short-term fasting in order to increase focus and energy levels in order to, to focus on maybe a project for an extended period of time. And this is them sort of hacking their, their hunger instinct in order to focus. But on the other hand, since your sympathetic nervous system is activated, this can bring you down into a flight state or a fight state. Right? So you can be more easily triggered into that fighting physiological state of being angry with somebody. Uh, so what St. Paul is saying here is when he's hungry, right, he has the virtue, both from a natural level, but also from the grace of God, an infused virtue, in order to live well, right, to not commit the sin of wrath, even though he might experience anger. And on the other hand, when there's abundance, right, when you have more than you could ever want to eat, especially in the, in the context of human culture where the food's being being processed and prepared, whether it be the simple preparation like grinding and cooking and salting, or it be more, more complicated processing like mixing together different additives in order to create the experience of a certain flavor. Right? We, we need to have virtue in the midst of this, both a natural virtue, the virtue of temperance, but also uh, know that the Lord will provide a supernatural virtue, infused virtue, both in the virtue of infused virtue of temperance, but also the theological virtue of charity and justice and things of this nature in order to make sure that we are living well in the midst of abundance. In, in, in society where, where I live in the United States, you know, we really have to face this reality that we live in a society of extreme abundance and we don't often live well in the midst of it. So we have an extreme need for virtue but I think we also have to use the virtue of prudence and understand that we need to create an environment for ourselves where we can flourish. Right? So one of the most common uh, piece of advice that health advocates will give you is to control your food environment at home. Meaning you don't have stuff in the house that you don't want to eat. And then you consistently control what your senses experience in your home in order to give your body the signaling for things that are going to be healthful for nourishing things, um, to avoid those overprocessed foods or limit them as much as you can. And by doing this, we're not just thinking that we're going to get stronger and stronger and more virtuous to face our environment, but we also create an environment for ourselves to do what's traditionally called in our, in our tradition, uh, now is a bit uh, circular, to do what's been traditionally called the, avoiding the near occasion of sin. I think for many people, a bag of potato chips is a near occasion of sin. Having a whole tray of brownies or a cake in the fridge is a near occasion of sin. Having ice cream in the freezer might be a near occasion of sin. And so what we should do is to simply not have those things in the house, not have them around us. Now, we might at times choose to have those things as a special treat or when we're out and about or because it comes with the, 
maybe something we ordered at a restaurant. But in those circumstances, understand that a certain portion is going to be given to you versus having the whole bag available at your house. Right, so St. So Paul is sharing some deep wisdom here. Uh, here's from Proverbs chapter 13, verse 25. Our Lord says in the verse of Proverbs, when the just eat, their hunger is appeased, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. When the just eat, their hunger is appeased, but when the belly, the belly of the wicked suffers want. What, what's it pointing out here? It's this connection that our relationship to food isn't just a bunch of biological processes. It isn't just a bunch of hormones in our body, but, but we're persons who are body and soul. So we also have this relation, this moral relationship to the world around us and the possession or lack of virtue, being virtuous or being vicious. And so as a result of this, this changes our relationship with the food around us, right? The just person, the person that's in right relationship to the world around them, when they eat, they're satisfied. On the other hand, the wicked person, even when they have, they still suffer want. They still want more, right? They're not appeased by food. They don't just want to be, uh, they don't just want to have enough calories. They don't just want to have the right amount of protein to rebuild their body. They need an experience of flavor in order to manage their life. Whether it just be for the pleasure of it, it be the power of habit, or maybe they're using that experience of flavor in order to cope with the fact that since they're not in right relationship with the world around them, they are experiencing suffering. They're experiencing pain. And so one of the most common coping mechanisms we use is this appetite, the experience of flavor. And all of this, this wrecks this lipostat in the body, the homeostasis the body wants to maintain. Jesus in the scripture also presents himself to us as food, but not just food that gives us calories and, and protein, but it's food that, that satisfies the deepest longings of the human heart. In the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6, our Lord says, So Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, whoever believes in me will never thirst. So when the chosen people were in in, in Exodus, when they were out of the land of Egypt and wandering around the desert, right? The desert is a place where that nature does not provide enough food to sustain a population. So God supernaturally provided them with bread and quail, right? He gave them the calories they needed in order not to die. He gave them the protein in order for their bodies not to waste away, to maintain their muscle. But Jesus is saying that, that God the Father gives them true food because as humans, we're not just bodies. We're a body and soul composite that's a person. And as a person, our needs are deeper than calories and protein and minerals. Our bodies also need the true, the good, and the beautiful. We need relationship with God. But God has, has chosen a path of instrumentality, 
That's all throughout the scripture. God doesn't just do things. He chooses people to do things on his behalf. So God has designed us to experience him through others, right? So Jesus gives us a church. It's not just me and Jesus. It's me. It's the whole church and Jesus. Me experiencing Jesus through the church and the whole church experiencing Jesus together. And then finally, Jesus also then gives us the sacraments. That in the midst of this worshiping community, where we're both experiencing God on our own in our own prayer life and our own spirituality, our own mysticism, but also experiencing God in the midst of the community, in our relationships with one another, it's in the midst of this that he then gives us himself through these sacramental signs, through these basic physical things that signal to us the care and the sustenance of our bodies to give us the most deep and profound care and sustenance for our souls. God is using the natural to communicate the supernatural. And these are the sacraments. So so we as Catholics understand this bread of life discourse in reference to the Eucharist, in reference to the communion that we receive every time we go to Mass. Notice the the subtle uh, shift in Jesus' language here. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. So there's this connection between faith, believing in Jesus, and also receiving the Eucharist, taking Jesus in. And when the, the little ceremony we go through when we receive Jesus, the priest or deacon or extraordinary minister of communion says to us the body of Christ or the blood of Christ, and our response is, amen, which is a word that simply means, I believe, right? Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. There's also two sides to the experience of every sacrament. And this is a distinction that St. Augustine came to when confronting the Donatist controversy. Basically, whether or not somebody who was an apostate to the faith, rejected the faith in the midst of persecution, and then came back to the faith, whether or not their sacraments are valid. And what he said is from from the ex opere operato, so from the work worked, from the fact that the person used proper form in proper matter and then did what the church was intending to do, that sacrament is valid. Meaning the body, the bread and wine on the altar became the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, the individual sanctity of the, the person administering the sacrament and the person receiving the sacrament, the ex opere operantis, affects the amount that that grace is subjectively received by the person who's receiving it. So every time we go to Mass, regardless of the way that Mass happens, regardless of whether the priest is a saint or a scoundrel, regardless of whether or not we're all that great either, if the proper form and matter is used with the intention of the church, that bread and wine becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, on the other hand, the whole experience of it, the fittingness, the beauty, the wonder, the mystery of the liturgy, the way we've prepared ourselves, uh, our, our subjective state of connection with God or disconnection with God, and then how much the liturgy can bring us into deeper connection or further away, and then what, the way all this is communicated through the person of the minister, through the holiness of the priest, all of this is affecting my own individual reception of the grace that's offered in that sacrament. So returning to Jesus' words, 
Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. So coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus, right? Believing not just as a concept, as like a syllogism, as Jesus does exist. God exists. Jesus is God. Uh, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to give my whole life to him. But actually believing in Jesus in the way I act and believing in Jesus in the way my body reacts to God's presence. Right? This is a deeper level of belief that takes us through the ages of the spiritual life and through a healing journey. And then really being able to come to Jesus, not just physically bringing our body to the altar, but actually bringing our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul to our Lord. And so what's, what's demonstrated to us in the liturgy gives us a model of living that needs to resonate through our whole life in order that we can bring ourselves to the liturgy and receive what's being offered there. So what God's revealing to us and the way that he's offering himself is demonstrating to us the way that we're meant to offer in ourselves to one another and receive one another. And in this relationship of love that we enter into in the church, an experience of God there, there's this synergistic relationship with our bringing ourselves, giving ourselves to God and receiving God in the sacraments. All right, so this is why the sacraments are always received in the context of the community. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Uh, so hopefully, uh, as we've been exploring this idea of, of appetite and satiety, it gives you both an appreciation of the beauty and wonder of the design of your body, maybe a little bit of understanding of, of uh, why you maybe struggle to gain weight or lose weight, uh, your experience of food, your, maybe your inability or difficulty of controlling your intake of food, and also maybe a deeper reflection on your relationship with God. Do you hunger for our Lord? And then are you satisfied by him when you receive him? How can you enter more deeply into experiencing the, the true, the good, and the beautiful through the church and, and through deep, meaningful relationships and through prayer in order that you can receive the, the most intense and real experience of the true, the good, and the beautiful in the Eucharist? Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.